0: Liftoff and the clock
1: has started. We choose to go to the moon in this decay and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are
0: hard. Swift uh, and base here. The Eagle has landed. Discovery, go at up. And lift off, the final lift off of
1: Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. This is the space shot episode 424 from apollo to artemis and beyond i'm john Wolnix. i hope everyone is doing well during these times Uh, work has just been absolutely insane for me um a lot of free time has been uh, working extra hours getting a lot of stuff done um it's really cut into a lot of the free time I've had to produce the podcast, so I do apologize for this being the first episode in about three months. I have been busy, though. Uh, This is the audio from the latest talk that I gave at the Cosmosphere, well, remotely (laughs) delivered for the Cosmosphere, on the 51st anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11. Since I first gave this talk, I have updated the content, I'm including more information on Skylab, the shuttle program, and also the Artemis program, now that we have a little bit more clarity on those new missions. Earlier today, on Thursday the 30th, NASA launched the Perseverance rover to Mars. The rover and its Ingenuity helicopter will arrive on February 18th, 2021, and I'm looking forward to that touchdown on the Martian surface. I've got some normal podcast episodes coming up here soon. There's a lot I want to cover. Um, I have been making sure that Facebook and uh, social media channels are updated regularly, so if you haven't already done so, check out the social media links in the show notes. My presentation included a lot of pictures, so check out the show notes for a link to Google Drive. Um, There'll be a PDF with the slides from this presentation, so if you'd like to go along with the podcast, uh, check that out. I'll also be sharing the video version of this on Facebook here soon, uh, but I just wanted to get this audio out here before I have to go back to work here again soon. Um, I appreciate everyone tuning in, and again, check out the show notes for a link to that PDF so you can follow along with all of the pictures. And now, here's the audio from my Coffee at the Cosmo presentation, From Apollo to Artemis and Beyond.
0: I want to introduce our panelist, our host today, John Molnex. John is going to be presenting From Apollo to Artemis and Beyond. John is a space and science history communicator and volunteer for the Solar System Ambassador for NASA and JPL. He also volunteers here at the Cosmosphere. You've probably seen his posts on social media. And he helps produce a podcast for us. So if you've ever listened to our podcast on Fireside or Apple, just the Cosmosphere podcast, you can find him there. He also has another podcast that's wildly popular. It's called The Space Shot. It's entered its fourth season. It has over 400 episodes. They're mostly on space, science, history. He interviews some fantastic people. I highly encourage you to check that out as well. Again, on Apple and iPod, The Space Shot. John also contributes to publications on medium.com and other websites and where he covers history, news, space news, and technology. So without further ado, let's virtually welcome John John,
1: Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me
0: all right? We've got you loud and clear, John.
1: Cool. I'm gonna start my screen sharing here. And minimize this here real quick and can everybody see that first slide there i think carla you can <laughs> perfect i'm gonna get right to it so um, as carla said my name's john molnix i am a uh, space science communicator um, huge history nerd uh, going all the way back to Me as a little kid, I was the short kid in that picture there um, at the Cosmosphere back in the 90s, so this is something that I've been interested in my entire life. Um, As a volunteer at the Cosmosphere, I've been able to do some amazing stuff, Um, sitting there with some of the mission control consoles. I've been able to visit Hawthorne, see SpaceX up close. Um, That other picture there with the Mercury Mercury Redstone um, was out at Launch Complex 5 and 6, so I got to go to where human spaceflight started here in the state. So I've been able to travel to some pretty cool places. Um, as Carla said, I'm a podcaster, so I've been able to do some really fun interviews. And I have to say, you know, top one for me was being able to sit down with Jack from Spaceworks and uh, go over um, the restoration process of mission control and actually sit at the flight director's console there um, as it was being restored by Spaceworks. So just a really incredible opportunity Um, today we're going to be going from or talking about from apollo to artemis and beyond and really i'm going to be covering a lot of content here Um, there's about 60 years of history so we're going to go through these early missions here at warp speed Uh, starting off with the mercury seven which was nasa's astronaut group one we had walter Shirah, deke slayton john glenn scott carpenter Alan Shepard, Gus Grissom, and Gordon Cooper. And a funny note on that slide there, um, if you notice, Slayton and Glenn, they've got a slightly different color boots on. It's because their pressure suit uh, boots weren't complete when that picture was taken. So Project Mercury was really the basics. Um, just six missions, on the Mercury Redstone and the Mercury Atlas. And this was really making sure that humans could function in space, Uh, There is, you know, debates on whether humans could actually eat in space. So just really getting up there, doing the basic nitty-gritty of learning how to fly in space. Um, Coming up here next week is going to be the anniversary of Liberty Bell 7's launch. And as Carla mentioned, we've got some cool content on the website for that. Um, And there's going to be some really cool pictures um, from the behind the scenes of the restoration and then of the mission itself. Um, the first flight of Mercury Project Mercury was in 1961 with Freedom 7 and Alan Shepard's launch. That's pictured in the top left, uh, top left picture there. So the um, Mercury Redstone rocket lifting off from Launch Complex Five. Um, next one over there in the middle would be Liberty Bell 7. So it's just pretty remarkable that uh, where Carla's standing right now, um, that little capsule's on the top of that rocket in the picture there. So once NASA had a little bit of spaceflight experience, and by a little bit, I mean about 15 minutes and 28 seconds of experience, President Kennedy committed to landing a man on the moon before the 1960s was out. Uh, this is a very audacious plan, um, something that really hadn't ever been done before, obviously. And the reason he did that was, the Soviets, early in the space race, had a little bit better capability than we did, and he felt that it was going to be, you know, that like that technological leap was something that we could surpass the Soviets' uh, experience and capability, and that's why that he and NASA decided to go to the moon, which led us to Project Jiminy. Uh, this really paved the way for being able to operate in space for longer periods of time. It proved that rendezvous in space was possible. It proved that EVAs were possible so astronauts could go outside the spacecraft, work on, you know, like retrieving film canisters like they would from Apollo later, um, or working on experiments. There was a lot of things that were used or that were done during the Gemini program um, as a proving ground. And there were 10 missions um, in the program. The first nine are picture, nine of them are pictured here. And my favorite launch photo—it's a multiple exposure here. I'm going to show you on the next slide—is um, of Jiminy 10. Um, the the launch tower didn't retract as the rocket was launching; it had already retracted by the time the rocket lifted off. But I just love this uh, multiple exposure. And then on the right over here, um, we have the spacesuit that Michael Collins wore uh, during the Jiminy 10 mission, uh, which is on display at the Cosmosphere. So. Gemini was really the the stepping stone to Apollo. It was necessary. There was a lot of incredible missions. Uh, The longest one was just under 14 days. And if you've ever visited the Cosmosphere, you know how cramped the Gemini spacecraft is. Uh, I don't know if I could spend 10 days, let alone two days, in something that tiny. So pretty remarkable what the astronauts were able to do. After Gemini, of course, we have Apollo. And this is a really cool picture that somebody on Wikimedia Commons um, shared. It shows all of the Saturn V launches from the um, uncrewed Apollo 4 all the way up to the launch of the Skylab space station, which we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, An interesting note, too, the first Saturn I rocket, which was the smaller variant um, that was used to launch just a command module, actually launched for the first time back in 1961. So the hardware that was used during the Apollo program was really in development for a long time and it's remarkable how those capabilities evolved. Um, 13 Saturn V rocket launches total from Apollo 4 in 1967 to Skylab in 1973 and now we're going to talk a little bit about the crewed missions here. Um, the first one, of course, Apollo 1. Um, Virgil Gus Grissom, Ed White and Roger Chaffee um, died in a pre-test launch pad fire. Um, just really just a sad stroke of events that you know led to uh, just one of the most tragic events in spaceflight history. Um, however nasa was able to learn from this failure and there was major design and engineering changes to the apollo spacecraft which made it a better uh, better spacecraft and safer for humans to be in Uh, next up we've got kind of the forgotten apollo mission which was apollo 7. Um, don Isley, wally shirra and walt cunningham flew in an earth orbital mission Um, this was basically just a shakedown cruise of the command and service module And interestingly, it's the first time that there was a live TV broadcast of Americans from space. Next up, and we celebrated the 50th, gosh, two years ago now. It's hard to believe with how long 2020's felt. Uh, But two years ago, we had the 50th anniversary of Apollo 8. And this is one of my favorite missions for a number of reasons, but it's the first time that humans left the gravitational influence of Earth and entered orbit around another world. Frank Borman, Bill Anders, and Jim Lovell, pictured there, uh, did some amazing things in orbit of the moon. And they captured one of the most iconic images of the 20th century, which is Earthrise. And the astronauts on my crew like to say that they traveled to the moon to you know, learn about the moon, but they ended up discovering Earth. Next up we 've got Apollo nine, which was the second launch of a Saturn V rocket with humans on board and this was an Earth orbital shakedown so their lunar modules flown in Earth orbit as well as the command module and then Apollo ten uh, they the fun little peanuts and NASA connection there with the lunar module that was named Snoopy and the command module named Charlie Brown. This was basically a dress rehearsal for Apollo 11, which launched in July of 1969. And actually on that note, today is the 51st anniversary of the launch of Apollo 11. Uh, Neil Armstrong, Michael Collins, and Buzz Aldrin became the first crew to launch on a lunar landing mission, Of course, Buzz and Neil went down to the surface while Colin stayed in the command module. Um, But just, I wanna note before we go any further, the launch sequence of these, so just how quickly these missions launched in succession. We had Apollo 8 in December of 1968. Then we had Apollo 9 in March of 1969. Apollo 10 was in May of 1969. Uh, Apollo Eleven in July. So just an incredible launch cadence. Uh, getting those mish, excuse me, getting those missions uh, just in rapid succession. It was just you know kind of staggering compared to the flight you know frequency that we've seen now. And hopefully, you know with SpaceX and Boeing starting to launch uh, crews, we should uh, be getting to fly to space a little bit more frequently than we have been the past couple decades. Just a fun shot of the Saturn V for Apollo Eleven taking off. Another fun one here. Uh, Michael Collins took this picture, um, and he was quoted as saying, "I think you've got a fine, fly, fine-looking flying machine there, Eagle, despite the fact that you're upside down." Um, he took this image on one of the Hasselblad cameras, and one of the film canisters uh, that was used to cat- or that was used to basically house the film. Um, that took this picture is on display at the Cosmosphere, which is really cool. And some of these images are ones that we shared last summer during the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11. And those, it was a lot of writing, but those were a lot of fun to produce. I really enjoyed making uh, all of those posts. And then here we've got a picture of Buzz on the surface of the moon. And if you look really closely in his uh, helmet's reflection, you can see Neil and... Amazingly enough, there's not very many pictures of Neil actually on the lunar surface. Um, He was taking most of the pictures of Buzz, and Buzz, for whatever reason, wasn't taking as many. Um, But this is one where you can see Neil reflected through Buzz's uh, visor. And then next up, we have Apollo 11. Um, I'm on. Um, So we have Apollo 11, which is uh, a... um, Give me one second here, i got to reset. We have Apollo 11 uh, Lunar Traverses up next. And I just want everybody to take a look at how small these lunar traverses were. Um, This is the deck of the USS Intrepid, which is a museum in New York. Um, You can see like the SR-71 Blackbird, which is also on display at the Cosmosphere. There's one of those there. And then here in the middle, Um, with the yellow, that that yellow outline essentially is where the astronauts walked and then then in the middle of that is a representation of the lunar module. So I just want everybody to keep in mind how small um, that area really is once we talk about Apollo 17 here in just a sec. Next up we have Eagle uh, returning from the lunar surface, another really cool Earthrise picture. Interestingly enough, Michael Collins, the uh, command module pilot for Apollo 11, was the only human not in this picture, which is just kind of wild if you think about it. Next up, Apollo 12, and we're gonna fly through these next ones here real quick. Um, Apollo 12 is really cool because it was the first time that humans brought back a piece of a spacecraft from another mission. Um, The scoops from Surveyor three were on board Um, We're were basically taken back on board the Apollo command module um, and returned to Earth. Next up, we have Apollo 13. Uh, Everybody knows about this one, obviously. We just celebrated the 50th anniversary of that mission. Um, They had to abort the lunar landing portion just due to an oxygen tank um, that was faulty and exploded in flight. So unfortunately, they weren't able to land on the moon, but they did return safely to Earth. And here is Odyssey on display at the Cosmosphere. Apollo 14 uh, basically did the landing that Apollo 13 would have done in the Mauro Highlands. Apollo 15, as soon as my computer advances here, um, was the first flight with the lunar roving vehicle. Um, so this allowed astronauts to cover more ground on the lunar surface. Um, They were also able to stay on the lunar surface for a longer period of time, uh, nearly three days, um, with improvements to the limb. And then next up we have Apollo 16, Um, they deployed one of the first astronomical, the first astronomical telescope on the moon and John Young, uh, astronaut John Young pictured in the middle there, drove the lunar roving vehicle in what they jokingly called the Grand Prix where he put it through its paces and if you look closely you can see kind of the rooster tails of the lunar dust and regolith being kicked up by those wheels. And then lastly we have Apollo 17 and this is the first time so far and the only time that a scientist has actually walked on the moon. Uh, Harrison Schmidt is a geologist and he was able to study the lunar surface in detail Um, up close. There's also the only night launch of the Saturn V rocket, which is pictured here. And then here's that Apollo 11 traverses again. So USS Intrepid, pretty big ship. You can see all the different airplanes. I'm gonna move it to the next slide here. Intrepid is in a yellow circle. This is the traverses that um, that were done during Apollo 17. So all the way from Williamsburg Bridge up through Central Park. Um, the astronauts on Apollo 17 were able to cover an incredible amount of distance. Um, and this just kind of an interesting note, comparing a robotic mission to a human mission, in the six years that the Curiosity rover has explored Mars, that rover has covered roughly 21 kilometers um, in six years. The Apollo 17 crew was able to cover about 35 kilometers in 75 hours. Now, obviously, the robotic explorers are able to you know, look at things along the way. They can stop, look at areas of interest, and then keep moving. So it's not an entirely fair comparison, but it's just a striking difference between the capability of having a human on a planet, exploring, and then having a robot that's a little bit slower. That being said, I love Curiosity, and I'm excited to see the Perseverance rover launch here soon. Um, this next picture shows Apollo 17 from the uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. If you look closely, you can see the footpaths of the astronauts as well as the moon buggy tracks. Um, so if anyone ever has doubts that we landed on the moon, here's the satellite proof that we did. Um, landing sites for the Apollo missions, were really kind of in the equatorial region and what's gonna be exciting about Artemis and the Artemis program is there's going to be missions to the poles on the moon, which should give us an entirely new look at the composition of the moon. And after Apollo, we moved on to Skylab. And this is something that, you know, for long duration flight that I really want to cover today. Um, Skylab gave NASA its, you know, its first experience with long duration flight. Up until Skylab, the longest humans had been in space for American astronauts was just under 14 days. Uh, With Skylab, that number was more than doubled on numerous occasions. And here's the liftoff of the Skylab space station on the last Saturn V rocket. So there were three crewed missions. And a really quick note on how the Skylab missions were numbered. They're really weird. Um, There was a miscommunication that resulted in the mission patch for Skylab 2 reading as Skylab 1 with a Roman numeral 1. Similarly, Skylab 3 had its emblem read Skylab 2 in Roman numerals. And then Skylab 4 had its mission patch read Skylab 3 in an Arabic numeral instead of a Roman numeral. So it was really kind of a mess of uh, naming and uh, graphics for these missions. But there were some really cool things that were done during this program. Uh, This is the crew of Skylab 1. Uh, We have an Apollo and Jiminy uh, veteran uh, Pete Conrad there in the middle, along with Paul Weitz and Joe Kerwin. Um, they were basically the uh, the crew that fixed the space station. Uh, when Skylab launched, there were some issues with, uh, with that launch. And about a minute into flight, um, the station actually lost some of its protective shroud, which ripped off a solar panel as well. And you can see in this black and white image on the left, there's a bundle of wires there um, that's the attachment point for where one of the solar panels was supposed to be. Um, another piece of wire kind of wrapped itself around the other solar panel, and you can kind of see it almost looks like one of those accordion fans uh, there on the right side, or right top um, of the station, and that's that second um, solar panel that they had to work to free. Um, the other picture here is showing mission control. Uh, so you have those the consoles that the Cosmosphere restored there. Um and flight controllers working the problem of trying to fix the Skylab station. Um, let's go next slide here. Uh, this is how Skylab looks uh, looked after this uh, first uh, crewed mission to the station. the astronauts were able to deploy a parasol uh, to basically help keep the air or uh, the spacecraft cool. Um, without that micrometeoroid and sun shield the station got really hot which was affecting the ability of astronauts to do science experiments it could have spoiled food and it just generally got too hot for the astronauts so they really needed to make sure that they got that uh, parasol deployed um, the other the other really important uh, thing for that first mission was getting the remaining solar panel deployed uh, the windmill solar panels there the windmill looking thing um, that's the Apollo Soy or the Apollo um, telescope mount, and those solar panels really were only designed to provide power to the telescope on Skylab. They could use it for short times, but there was a lot of issues with like constantly reorienting the station using thrusters. So they really needed to get one of those primary solar panels back online. And the crew of Skylab one did an amazing job. They were able to get the station back up and running, um, and get it to. You know, that it's one of the they talk about Apollo 13 being NASA's finest hour. Um, Skylab is right up there with figuring out how to, with figuring out how to fix a sat or a station in space from the ground with minimal data on what exactly happened. And it just is really a testament to the work that the astronauts, the engineers, um, seamstresses did for the parasol, really everybody pulled together. Um, there was even a story of a, I forget what state it was in, but um, a NASA engineer was taking some hardware for Skylab and he got pulled over for speeding. And the cop, once he found out that the engineer was working on Skylab, basically just told him to get on his way and go. Uh, so everybody was pulling for Skylab. Uh, next up here, we've got the crew of Skylab 2. Um, left, from left to right here, we've got Jack Lausma, uh, Owen Garriott, and Alan Bean. Uh, Bean was a moonwalker um, for Apollo 12 as well, so it's it's cool to see that there's some veterans that were a part of these missions. One of the uh, primary focuses of the Skylab missions, you know, aside from learning to live and work in space for a long time, was studying um, our sun. And this uh, image, it's crude by today's standards, but it shows Earth in relation to an eruption on the sun, a coronal mass ejection. So there's some really uh, striking science that the crew was able to do. They even took time to do fun little things like haircuts. (laughs) Uh, Alan Bean getting his hair cut with a vacuum there from Owen Garriott. And then lastly for Skylab, we have the final crew, Skylab 3, um, Gerald Carr, Ed Gibson, and Bill Pogue. And this is something I wanted to show earlier too, but it shows just the size difference between the Saturn 1B and the Saturn 5. So this image here is of the Saturn 1B atop what was called the milk stool. And what this did is it made sure that the Saturn 1B, which was a really small rocket, could go up to the crew access arm that was installed for the Saturn 5 rocket. And this was so NASA didn't have to build like an entirely new launch tower. They could just stack the Saturn 1B on top of where essentially the first and part of the second stage would be for the Saturn V rocket. Uh, they had some fun in Skylab. The interior volume of the station was just incredibly uh, big. And here we've got uh, Gerald Carr, the commander of Skylab, um, holding Bill Pogue, kind of balancing him on his finger. Um, next to it, we've got an image um, that was taken during an EVA excuse me, of the comet Kahotek. Um, And this was something that was also studied by the crew of Skylab when they were in uh, orbit. And this is something that does crop up a lot. Um, there's some really good uh, resources on why there was no mutiny on Skylab. Um, I'd recommend reading Homesteading Space, the Skylab story. Um, The author David Hitt worked with a lot of the Skylab astronauts on uh, interviews. They've got diaries from some of the astronauts, and there's some really good information there. Give me one second. Cat's getting down here. (laughs) Come here. Wouldn't be a Zoom meeting without a cat jumping from somewhere. Um, So there was no mutiny on Skylab. Um, Really, there's some just kind of a long story, but long story short. what happened was the crew of Skylab 4 or Skylab 3 would take turns responding to ground controllers. So all three of them would have headsets on, but instead of everybody having to respond, they would cycle through and take turns. Um, unfortunately for one orbit, they forgot who was, uh, who was next for, uh, for communicating with the ground. And... That kind of led to the notion or the stigma that there was you know, cranky astronauts that went on strike or mutinied on the station and weren't responding to NASA. Um, there was a terrible Harvard Business Review um, study written on the subject. Um, long story short, I'd recommend reading Homesteading Space. Um, blogger Emily Carney also has some awesome resources on um, you know, how there was no mutiny and just busting that myth. Um, and I'll make sure that we get those linked on the Cosmosphere website. That way, people can check them out uh, later. Um, really, the big, the big lesson from this story, and the reason I bring it up, is NASA learned a lot about human factors during Skylab, about how crews could be expected to work long times uh, without, you know, goofing off, being able to have fun, look out the window, as it were. Um, And this better communication between flight crews and between ground controllers really is one of, I think, the most important legacies of the Skylab program. Um, The mission itself, the station is incredible. I mean, the picture that you're seeing here is the inside of Skylab. Um, In terms of like how big the station is, I'll show you a picture of the International Space Station here shortly, Uh, but just the interior volume of Skylab was just staggeringly big. Um, even by today's standards, um, but I think Skylab's legacy is going to be, you know, as as we get a little bit farther out, and we're coming up on the fiftieth anniversary of those Skylab missions. I think people are going to start to appreciate how transformative these early space station missions to Skylab were. Um, and they were long duration. Um, the first crew of Skylab doubled the previous U.S. record in space. The second Skylab crew doubled that first record, um, and then the final crew, um, eighty-four days in space, um, for a crew that supposedly mutinied, they ended up getting all of their science um, objectives completed, and it was really it went down in the books for you know for a crew of rookie astronauts, it went down in the books as one of the most productive missions um, in history, and then of course you know the milestones observing Earth. Taking some amazing pictures of home, um, studying the sun, living to live or learning to live and work in space, and just generally expanding our knowledge of the solar system Um, and figuring out also how to shower in space, as Jack Lausma shows here. Uh, No no talk about Skylab would be complete without that picture. Uh, Next up, we have Apollo Soyuz, which launched 45 years ago yesterday. Um, this was the first joint uh, US and Soviet mission um, where a Soyuz capsule and an Apollo command module docked in orbit. Um, there is a mock up on display at the Cosmosphere, and it's just really staggering to see those two spacecraft, even in a mock up form. Um, what that must have been like for the astronauts and cosmonauts is just, you know, it's an amazing experience, especially in the fact that, you know, these guys ended up being friends in. You know what was still kind of the, not the hot part of the Cold War, but they were still adversaries. The countries that they represented were still adversaries, so it was cool to see that they could come together and fly that cooperative mission. And then after Apollo Soyuz, we moved on to Shuttle. Um, Shuttle was a you know companion for me growing up. I I don't remember a time where there wasn't shuttle flights when I was a kid. from STS-1, which is pictured there on the left um, in 1981 to STS-135, which is pictured on the right, um, there's three decades of missions, whether it was, you know, launching and repairing the Hubble, the Hubble Space Telescope or building the International Space Station or just flying on a, you know, a space hab mission uh, or space lab mission. there was really some incredible science that was done during the uh, shuttle program. Um, the longest shuttle mission ran about 17 and a half days, um, but most missions typically ran between five and six days. Uh, the crews ranged from two astronauts for the first missions, uh, those test missions, um, up to eight astronauts. Um, interestingly, the shuttle was the so far the only rocket that's ever been flown untested uh, with humans on board. So like the test flight of the shuttle was with two astronauts on board, um, John Young and Bob Crippen. And that was pretty remarkable that, you know, everything went off without a hitch for that mission. Uh, There was some tile loss early on that NASA discovered. They had to change the sound dampening system to make sure that those SRBs didn't shake the uh, tiles, the thermal protection system off of the shuttle. Um, But they learned a lot from those flights. Um, And the shuttle led us to the Shuttle Mirror missions. And this really is the, the phase one of the International Space Station program. It was getting Americans back in space for long periods of time um, on increments, as they were called, on board the Russian uh, space station Mir. Um, there was you know, some really cool uh, oral histories and blog posts from the time. Um, and it was American astronaut uh, Andy Thomas. I just want to read a quick excerpt from one of his oral histories, uh, quote, Perhaps one of the most moving moments though was as we drew further and further away, we went into the night side of the planet and I could see the stars and the running lights of the station were on. You couldn't see Mir. All you could see was lights flashing. They were just going off in the distance, those flashing points of light fading out slowly. That was kind of an emotional moment because I knew that would be the last time I would see it, Mir, forever. Um, he was the last American astronaut to fly to the Mir Station. Um, now, obviously, we've had you know 20 plus years of continuous human spaceflight um, with the International Space Station, which is pictured here. Um, and this next one, I've got a GIF which will hopefully play. There we go, perfect. Uh, so this just shows the ISS construction over lots of different shuttle flights. The ISS is the largest human made object to ever orbit the Earth. It has a mass of nearly 1 million or just over 900,000 pounds or about 410,000 kilograms. It has a pressurized volume of roughly 33 or 32,000 square feet or cubic feet. Um, The ISS can generate 80 kilowatts of electric power with all of its uh, solar arrays now. Um, The structure itself, from truss to truss, Uh, Measures 95 meters, or about 311 feet, um, and then about 190, 193 feet in the other direction. So it's a really big, um, really big space station. Um, Not, not everything in this animation here is habitable. Um, The trusses are used to like store equipment, have cable, you know, relays for power, all of that stuff. but just it's remarkable how all of these different you know components, whether it's the Kibo module from Japan, Zarya from Russia, um, you know the Harmony or the Tranquility module, or the sorry, um, the Cupola with uh, the Tranquility module. There's just so many partner nations that have come together to put the station together. It's just it's a testament to the cooperation that's needed for those long duration flights. Um, now, obviously, we've also moved into commercial crew, uh, which is the next phase of you know getting crew to the International Space Station. Um, we have Doug Hurley here in the foreground and Bob Behnken in the background there. Uh, they launched on a SpaceX uh, Crew Dragon capsule on May 30th. That ended the longest gap in human spaceflight uh, capability from the United States. Um, SpaceX, of course, brings their rockets back to land, either on drone ships or um, back at Cape Canaveral. Um, So they're able to reuse the first stages of their rocket. And here's another close-up of the Falcon 9 that launched uh, Doug and Bob just this last May. Um, And I'm sharing this picture just because I want to kind of point out some history here. So in the foreground, obviously, we have SpaceX, the Falcon 9, so the present of uh, space exploration. In the middle, upper third there, way in the back, it's kind of hard to see probably on Zoom, but there is the mock-up Mercury Mercury Redstone rocket, and that is launch complex five and six. So that's where the first humans to launch from Earth took off from. And then the very top right, hopefully it's not blocked by the picture-in-picture mode, um, there's some construction going on, and that's actually the site where Blue Origin will be launching from here soon as well. So it's just a really interesting picture showing the past, present, and future of space exploration there. Um, the current crew on board the International Space Station. And just contrast that with that picture I showed you earlier of uh, of Skylab's interior versus the station. It's quite a difference. And another shot here of Crew Dragon and the ISS. And then next up, we are going to be talking about the Moon and the Artemis program here. We're going to finish up with that. So Artemis is the twin sister of Apollo. Um, There's a return to the lunar surface in 2024. Fingers crossed we can still make that. Um, There's going to be a mission to the Moon's South Pole. And NASA is really aiming for a sustainable presence uh, on the moon by 2028. Um, They're also going back with international partners and commercial partners as well. Um, This is a picture of the Orion spacecraft, um, the capsule that will be used for Artemis One, which is tentatively launching late 2021, like November-ish, I think. Um, NASA's Orion spacecraft is designed to take four astronauts Um, farther than they've ever gone before. And it's gonna do that on top of the space launch system. Um, The first one will be the block one, which won't be as powerful as the final version of the SLS. Uh, But here's a picture of uh, the booster that will be used for Artemis one, I believe on this picture. And then Artemis one, there's not gonna be any astronauts on board. So it's an uncrewed launch. Kind of a shakedown cruise. There's going to be some science on there. Um, I believe CubeSats are going to be on board. I don't remember exactly off the top of my head here, um, but it's something I can definitely share um, afterwards in the notes. Um, The Gateway is also going to be part of NASA's plan to return to the moon. Um, It's an orbiting platform that's going to host astronauts um, for science stays on the Gateway. Um, For stays on the lunar surface, they could use the Gateway as kind of a stepping stone. Um, Part of going to the Gateway is going to be utilizing commercial partners to launch payloads to uh, the Gateway and to the lunar surface. And to the lunar surface, NASA is going to be leveraging private companies for science missions. Uh, Masten Space Systems of California is going to deliver um, eight payloads. Um, with nines and science and technology instruments to the lunar surface. And this is the picture of one of their landers here. Um, and they're going to be going to the South Pole by 2022 um, to help lay the foundation for future human expeditions there. And then obviously working with those commercial partners, uh, this picture here shows a SpaceX um, uh, gateway logistics service uh, delivery of cargo to the gateway. And then most excitingly, We have the lunar landers. Uh, The one on the left there is being developed by SpaceX. They're going to be using their Starship. Um, The middle one there is from uh, Dynetics of Huntsville, Alabama. They're going to be developing that really cool looking lander there. And then the last one is the national team. It's a mix of uh, Blue Origin and other companies that are coming together to develop um, a more traditional looking lander there. And getting back to the moon it's you know it's on the way to mars i think the moon is really going to give nasa a good stepping stone for getting to beyond uh, obviously beyond low earth orbit but also beyond the moon as well um right now we're utilizing robotic explorers to explore mars and other distant planets in the solar system um and really what's happening here in the next decade is NASA's gonna be building on that legacy of Apollo, of Skylab, of International Space Station, and they're gonna push back to the moon. Um, Artemis, I'm really excited to see the Artemis program. Um, I'm hoping we can hit that 2024 uh, deadline, fingers crossed, um, but definitely a sustainable presence by 2028. So there's a lot coming up here, um, a lot to be excited about, a lot to watch for, um, so, obviously, watch the Cosmospheres pages, watch NASA's website, um, really just keep an eye out for all the incredible stuff that's going to be coming up here in the next decade. And that is all I've got for everybody today.
0: Wow, John, that was fabulous information. So much information, actually, and and stories I've There's never a lot. Heard. <laughs> there really is. It's pretty impressive. So we do have some great questions here that have come through. Um, We wonder, is there anything unique about the Skylab station in terms of construction? You talked um, a bit about how large it was compared to the International Space Station. Yep.
1: Um, Let me just turn off my screen share here so I can see everybody now. Um, One second. So Skylab is pretty unique. The Apollo Applications Program, um, there was lots of you know, NASA trying to utilize capabilities. Um, just an interesting little tidbit, the hatch that was used on Skylab was actually um, based off of a Gemini design. So the hatch on the Gemini spacecraft was the hatch for Skylab. I don't know if it was like a flown Gemini hatch, but it was that, that same design.
0: That is interesting. Um, here's another one for you, John. What would you say has been the most important thing that has been taken from the past US space exploration and Russian missions that is keeping, that's being used in the current missions?
1: I think it goes back to Skylab and just realizing the human factors of spaceflight. I mean, robotic missions, obviously, the rovers, you know, you have to learn how to operate a robot, but Skylab really taught us how humans work. And you know, obviously, space station has done that too. But just figuring out the human component of it, I think, is the most important. And for me, that's the most exciting, just because as as a human, I would like to get out and explore. So <laughs> would be, you know, that's something that I think is the most uh, enduring legacy.
0: Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Especially with the length um, of days that they were up there compared to the earlier missions, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, Here's another one, why has NASA gone back to the capsule design?
1: Um, Safety um, and just simple design, it works. Um, The shuttle was awesome, but riding alongside the, you know, the external tank and those solid rocket boosters did put it in a position where, you know, foam impacts from the external tank could be a problem. Um, The capsules are just gonna be safer. They're riding all the way up at the top of the rocket. just a safer design inherently.
0: Sure, that totally makes sense. And how futuristic those spacesuits are from the SpaceX. The SpaceX I just ones are cool. That.
1: Yeah, Do we I'm know glad they've gone back to the worm too.
0: <laughs> yes, I like that logo as well. Um, do you know when the first Artemis launch date is set?
1: It's tentatively November, 2021. You know, obviously, I'm, I'm hoping that that stays um, just because they, they kind of need to hit a lot of milestones. NASA needs to hit a lot of milestones in a row here. Um, I, I'm hoping it launches November 2021, but we'll see.
0: Are they under similar time crunch restraints like we saw in those Apollo programs or you mentioned the, <laughs> the launches being so close together?
1: Hey, not really, um, it's more, political stuff um, that I just don't really want to get into on that one. Um, but really, I think what Administrator Bridenstine is going to be doing with NASA's budget, with, you know, walking that fine line between making sure NASA has the money it needs. Um, and, you know, obviously, promoting what the you know the policies of the nasa's an executive branch agency, so he's walking a fine line between promoting those policies and making sure nasa gets funding and i think bridenstine is probably going to be one of the most uh important nasa administrators in history just because i think so far he's shown that he can walk those walk that line um in a way that no not really any other administrators have been able to do so i'm i'm hopeful that you know even if there is a change in administration that nasa's plans for artemis is going they're going to continue on and we're going to meet that 2024 20, deadline and the 2028 20, goals so fingers crossed
0: so in the same vein here with Administrator Weinstein, we know that he has declared uh, that we will be going back to the moon. But why back to the moon and why not just on to Mars?
1: It's an important stepping stone. Uh, a lot of the tech that's, you know, we can use on Mars is going to be applicable on the moon. Plus, if something goes wrong, the moon's not that far away. Um, kind of like a kid going away for college, kind of want to be close. If something bad happens, it's easier to get home. Um, Mars, there's also you know more limits with, as we're seeing now with like the Perseverance rover launch, there's only certain windows that you can launch to Mars and get there in a reasonable reasonable amount of time. Whereas the moon, you can launch a lot more frequently. You can return a lot easier. Uh, It's just logistically, it's gonna be a simpler way to do things for right now and just prove those longer term deep space capabilities.
0: Sure, that totally makes sense. Okay, we're gonna jump backwards here a little bit, but talking about Skylab again, so is Skylab still in our atmosphere up there? Is it still orbiting or has it
1: come Um, It burned up. Stayed together a little bit better than NASA had anticipated. So parts of Skylab ended up breaking up over um, Australia. Um, I forget the town, but there's, um, how is it saving Skylab? There's a documentary, I'll make sure it gets in the links, um, about an Australian who's, who basically his fascination with Skylab started um, when it re entered and kind of broke up over um, Australia. So it reentered, I think it was in 1979. It was actually July, 1979. So it wasn't that long. We just celebrated the anniversary of it coming back not that long ago.
0: Okay, I think that kind of ends our questions here unless we've got a few more last minute ones. So if we could virtually thank John here for his time and his fabulous information.
1: And that is it for July. Next month, we will be starting season four of the podcast. I'd love it if you could leave a review for the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Reviews help more people find out about the podcast, and I appreciate any time you take to write a review. I also have a call-in number if you have questions or comments. Hit me up via text or voice at 720-772-7988. I'll be sure to get back to you. You can also connect with me at John Molnick's on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. All of the social media links are in the show notes for today's episode. Until next time, I'm John Mulnix, and I'll catch you on the flip side.